This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cut. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mary Daria Russell. She's a retired paleoanthropologist and the author of four novels, including The Sparrow and Children of God. This unedited interview does contain some plot details about those novels. I spoke with her on January 14, 2009, from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of WCPN in Cleveland, Ohio. This interview was included in our program, The Novelist as God. Download the MP3 of that produced show at speakingoffaith.org. Pull it down. Yeah, there. (laughs) I told you I was small. Okay. Hello? So, oh, this kind of left or right, like that. Peter Piper picked a pack of... And you should get a level on the laugh, too, because that's going to happen. <clears throat> Hello, friends in Minnesota Public Radio. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, it's Krista. Hello, this is thrilling. We listen to your show on WAMU on um, oh. Internet Radio on Sunday mornings. Oh, great. Well, it's thrilling for me, too. I'm so happy to have you at the other end of the microphone. I've been Thank you. I've been talking to you, but you weren't hearing me. No, no, I just just now. <laughs> You've been talking to Jeff, and he no. won't tell me anything. Why? Why do you listen on WAMU? Did you live in Washington at one point? No, we have an internet radio, and I kind of just you look like for, what they do. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, they're they're good in a, 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 a Colorado public radio, uh-huh. uh, and uh, WCPN and WKSU. We're just just PBS hogs, yeah, <laughs> or, or, or NPR hogs, right. <laughs> you know, we're not on WCPN, but we're on the Kent State Station. Ah, okay. Yeah. I just, we have been for, mm, I don't know, maybe the last year. We're fairly, okay. fairly recent, Ed. Um, Yeah, so I picked up this barrow off a table at a bookstore, and I just then have devoured everything you've done. I think it's <laughs> fantastic. So. <laughs> You got over that whole thing about, oh, my God, it's about Jesuits in space. Oh, no, I loved Jesuits. I loved, I mean, the Jesuits in space completely hooked me from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, anything. I I had more trouble with everything else, but that was was a natural. (laughs) Franciscans have told me, oh, well, you know, they've been in space for years. (laughs) You should hear what the Benedictines say. Yeah, I've been more influenced by the Benedictines, and they are they are different <laughs> they species, to really. Them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the Benedictines says, "Well, we sing." You should have sent Benedictines on. Everybody wants to get in on this act. So. <laughs> no, no, I think you were right in choosing the Jesuits. I, 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 I respected all the reasons for which you did that. <laughs> Mitch, how are we doing on levels? Do you want to? Um, do you have any questions for me before we start? Well, my understanding is that this is 90 minutes and mm-hmm. that you then edit it down That's to 30. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you'll well, have somebody yeah. there who who uh, can make me sound more articulate by taking all the ums we, out. We, we will apply digital editing to you, which ah. we could all use, not only in life, <laughs> in marriage. <laughs> it's a great, great invention. Yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of political careers would be different yes, if you could do absolutely. that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I... Uh, I, I I was I, I this feels a little bit experimental to me because I was trying to think as I prepared um you know we the people who are listening 
um, <laughs> we can't assume, I mean, you can never they, assume yes. anything. And right. in this case, we can't assume that they've read the books, you know, that, so we, and, and also, I thought there are two, two concerns I had. Um, one is we can't assume that they know, you know, the characters, the plot, but also I don't want to give things away by talking right, exactly. about what happens. Yes. So what happened, you know, to right. Leo, what, you know, yeah, and I, exactly. and I was really yeah. trying to be careful about that as I, um, yeah. as I, as I prepared and, and that's not really what I want to talk about anyway. I don't talk about the big themes, but obviously the, the writing and the stories you've told are, are the anchor for the big themes. And if you've heard the program, you know, I mean, a way I, I imagine that, uh, when we pull this together, we would have, um, we can have readings from the book and in okay. that way bring some of the specifics in. So let's just see how this goes. I'm not okay. saying that... No, I, di- I did bring uh, copies of, of mm-hmm. the first two books because I, okay. I thought those were what you were going to talk those about. Those are the um, ones I want to start with and talk about mostly, but I okay. but I want to talk about... But not, I don't, don't just want to stick with that, so... Um, okay. And, and the other thing I should warn you is that I have not read either of those books for t- 10 or 12 years, so you probably know them a great deal better than I do. Okay. And, and, uh, <laughs> my, my producer told me that you said that. that you see, so, I, so I thought about that. I pondered that, and I thought, well, this is like, um, you know, you, you created this rock hot, and, I, and then uh-huh. this is like me, me going there for the first time, right. and I'm talking yeah. to the creator, so I, yeah. I've discovered it. and. <laughs> But, but so anyway, well, let's just do this and let's see what okay. happens. Yeah, um, what the hell? Would, yeah. <laughs> How bad can it be? We'll get thirty minutes out of it somehow. No, no, we'll get. Um, <laughs> and but you know where I always start with everyone, whoever I'm talking to, is just I, I'd like to hear a little bit about. And when, you know, we are obviously going to be talking about your um, religious and theological perspective now. But I'd like to hear a little bit as we start about the religious or spiritual background of your life, your upbringing. Uh, yeah. Well. Um, I am uh, uh, the product of what was called a mixed marriage back in the 1950s. Okay, which at that time a mixed marriage was uh, (laughs) Catholic and Congregationalist. Oh my! Uh, And it was a terrible scandal in my mother's family that Mm -hmm. she was marrying an Italian Catholic. Right. Uh, Her family uh, um, actually did uh, disown her for a while. Mm. They were so horrified by the prospect of an Italian Catholic for a son-in-law that uh, they they wouldn't speak to her and didn't attend the um, the wedding. Um, and, uh, you know, the, her, her, mo- <laughs> her mother says, well, he's the only thing worse is an Irish Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so my mother, like, gone to the depths for this, uh, for this. So this was your first experience of cross-species encounter. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and also it was, uh, it, it, it set me up for a lifetime of feeling that, um, uh, exclusion um, and uh, prejudice mm-hmm. was um, both uncalled for and absurd. Uh, so there has always been this um, sort of bedrock uh, feeling on my part that um, uh, received wisdom is something that you should not necessarily accept mm-hmm. uh, and that questioning is always worthwhile. Um, and if I had a, a theme song for my life, it would be it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And so now, where did you grow up? Where, where? Uh, just outside of Chicago okay. in Lombard, okay. Illinois. All right. So I'm a Midwest girl. Have uh-huh. always lived around the Great Lakes. And then you became a scientist, an anthropologist, a paleo yes. well, anthropologist. Yes. Um, I, um, if you want to continue the um, the the religious background, okay. mm-hmm. I um, I left uh, the Catholic Church when I was 15 years old. Mm. Um, that was in 1965, um, and um, 
I was, uh, <laughs> you know how um, teenagers can seek out and find um, hypocrisy? Yeah. Yes, I have a <laughs> with, with unerring accuracy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I became aware of the fact that my parents um, never were seen inside a church outside of weddings and funerals, and they generally didn't go to the funerals either. Hmm. Um, but they insisted that my brother and I go to Mass uh, because my mother, when she married my father, had promised the priest that she would raise the children to be Catholic. And when my mother gave her word, um, it happened. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I got into these knockdown, drag out arguments with her every Sunday morning about going to church. And I felt that I should not be required to do something that she herself did not do. Uh, you know, uh, and, and at the same time, it was the... Um, uh, Vatican II had gone through. Right. I was going to say, did you even let them get through Vatican II before you left? Well, the, yeah. Um, but the, <laughs> the thing about Vatican II, from yeah. my standpoint at right. 15, was that they had taken the best music that had been written I in see. Western civilization for the past 1,500 years and you know replaced it with a cheap audience participation yeah. show with okay. like, guitars and sopranos <laughs> and stuff. So... <laughs> So aesthetics drove me out uh, as well. So, um, yes, at that point, I I replaced the global understanding of the human soul that Catholicism offered uh, with the global understanding of the human species Mm. that anthropology offered. Mm. Uh, So it was, for me, a, a fairly smooth transition away from uh, Catholicism and into anthropology, which was also a sort of universal and Catholic with a small C right. um, study of humans, uh, and that that did okay for me for uh, for a good twenty years. When, when you say a paleo anthropology, is that now what I what I've seen? Stones is, and bones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so right, and and it is it also I've seen that you're classically trained in. Linguistics, yeah. um, yeah. sociocultural social anthropology, anth- social anthropology, archaeology, cultural anthropo- archaeology. So is that yeah. all? What is what is contained in this in within anthropology? Oh, with, yes, okay. it's called. I was I was uh, trained as a four fields anthropologist, uh, and uh, ultimately uh, I got my PhD in um, biological anthropology, and I specialized in uh, human evolution. Right. So biological uh, paleoanthropology would be um, the study of uh, human evolution. And then um, eventually you, you know, some of your, um, some of your defining work was in this field of uh, craniofacial biomechanics. Craniofacial. Yes. Say it again. Did I, you get it? I think I did. Craniofacial s- biomechanics. <laughs> That's right. Well done. <laughs> um, and, and cannibalism and... and, and <laughs> And you were, and so I was reading. I mean, I've been reading, you know, other interviews you've given, and I, and I, and I understood this finally. I mean, when you just have the the title, the headline, <laughs> cannibalism <laughs> at a Croatian Neanderthal site, it doesn't say a lot. But what? So tell me if this is right. What you understood is a way to demonstrate that the that cut marks on bones were not evidence of cannibalism, which was an assumption people had made, but of a mm-hmm. different kind of burial. Yes. yes. And and I suppose, and what were the implications of that in terms of? of how we interpreted Neanderthal oh, culture. They, they are fascinating, really, because um, I, I began with the, the notion that, uh, first of all, you should never, you should always question the assumptions. You should right, always right. test. And it was possible to test this because we have uh, um, bones of uh, animals that were butchered for food by Neanderthals uh, during the Mosterian. And we uh, also have um, the bones of people who have been um, 
buried in what's called secondary burial. What was interesting to me was that uh, cannibalism is um, very, very rare in the human species. Mm -hmm. Usually it's something that people accuse other people of, you know, like we would never do such a thing, but (laughs) those people are cannibals. Um, And I felt that that was possibly what uh, modern human beings were doing to um, the Neanderthals. We would never be cannibals, but those Neanderthals were. As a way of kind of distinguishing what what made us human. Yes, distinguishing and distancing and all the rest uh of it. Yeah. Um, And uh, on the other hand, secondary burial is extremely common across the human species, has great time depth. And, and uh, what that and means if, is that the bones were buried in one place for, for whatever reason or stored and then moved, right? Yes. And that's how uh, these well, it's, it, it's, uh, um Do you remember when uh, recently they thought that they had found the bones of James, the, the, uh, the brother of Jesus? Right. Mm-hmm. Remember that? That's uh-huh. called an ossuary. It was a stone box. Right, right. And the bones were missing, and, and it turned out to be a fraud. But... The, the, in the uh, Middle East uh, and in Sicily and in Madagascar and all, like all these different places across the world, mm-hmm. uh, you um, you bury uh, the bones for um, maybe uh, a year to three years, and then they are exhumed, and all of the soft tissue, most of it has already rotted away, but most any, any remaining soft tissue has to be cleaned off the bones very carefully because... In all of these cultures, there is this notion of a three-part death. First, you stop breathing, okay? Mm -hmm. But while the soft tissue, while the meat is still on the bones, your soul wanders. Uh. And this is where you get a lot of ghost stories and, Uh. you know, Uh. malevolence of the, you know, the the dead are are, um, uh, often considered to be jealous of the living. And uh, so anything bad that happens in a village, you know, oh, that must be uncle so-and-so. He's really angry at us for being alive. When all of the soft tissue is carefully cleaned off the bones, and then you are dead, 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 and your soul is at rest, okay, and then you are reburied. That's the second burial, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, what I was able to show was that the Neanderthal bones at Kropina Neanderthal Cave um, in Croatia um, were, when you compared them to butchered deer bones and when you compared them to um, the bones of a secondary burial in Junton in Michigan, um, they were two standard deviations off of the butchered bones, and they were dead in the middle of the uh, um, the description of the um, the, the secondary burials. Mm. And, and and we know those are secondary burials. We actually have a Jesuit uh, um, uh, um, report from the 1600s about those exact bones, which are now in a, a, a Michigan um, museum, and he had seen the secondary burial rituals and all of that. So what I was able to do was to say, statistically, um, the Neanderthals, uh, there appears to be no doubt at all that in this cave this is secondary burial, which implies that they also had a three-part notion of death, mm. and it implies a belief in the soul. So not only, were they, stuff. <clears throat> not only were they not cannibals, they had quite a complex. They were, yes, yes exactly. Now, we know where they were buried. We, that we have many, many other burial sites. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are Neanderthal burials where they're buried with flowers and with, uh, with grave goods. And mm-hmm. they took great care even with their children's burials. It's extremely unusual. Mm-hmm. And so um, we already had that information. And what I was able to say was, well, you have to give them credit for secondary burial as well. And that implies a lot of interesting things about the way they saw the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. Um, apparently, they're coming in to adjust your microphone. Oh, okay. So don't say anything else. Oh, okay. 
There. Okay. Apparently my, my peas are explosive. <laughs> I have that problem, too. We can work on that as well with okay. our digital editing. All right. So now that you know more than you ever wanted to hear <laughs> No, no, it's great. No, no, I am fascinated by this, too. I, so, okay, so let's, here's something that jumps out at me. When I look at the sweep of your work, um, uh, you started out with Neanderthals as a, as mm-hmm. a scientist. You, mm-hmm. The Sparrow and Children of God are works of science fiction, or I think you prefer the term speculative fiction. Um, no, no, set no, in no a, science fiction is fine with science me. Science fine with you. Mm-hmm. And you've written about uh, Jews living through the Holocaust and fascism in Italy, uh, the early 20th century um, in the Middle East, and you're right now working on a book um, about in, Doc Holliday. Uh, about yeah. Doc Holliday <laughs> set in the late uh, 19th century. And so I'm fascinated um, by the sense of time. Yeah. Your sense of time. Backwards. Right. Well, it seems to me you go backwards and forwards, uh, you know, making sense of now. So, yes. you know, let's just plunge into <laughs> this, this right. notion time. of the, yes. the bigger, the, the bigger, larger ideas here. So how, you know, so when I think about that, that's what you've done as a novelist. But I wonder, you know, d- does that have seeds in your perspective as a scientist and, and also in your religious uh, worldview that you've developed across the yeah, years? Yeah, it does. It does. That time depth has always uh, been important to me. Um, I I feel strongly that you don't understand where you are until you know where you've been. And it's not enough even with your own generation. I Maybe it's because my... My mother was such a mystery to me uh, <laughs> that uh, I felt the need um, to understand her. And to understand her, I needed to understand her mother and her family and her mother's family. And I kept finding bits of insight into how mom got to be the way she was um, by uh, finding out, for example, that her own mother was the daughter of divorce. Now, who divorced in 1857? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, it, it just... It, there was a lot to her, to be learned by going back into mom's family and understanding the um, the times and the expectations and the personalities of the people um, who raised her. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Um, and I suppose also for myself, the um, something about understanding the past has always just been really a live issue to me. Um, when I find out the the derivation of a word, uh, uh, that sort of thing just thrills me. I <laughs> I, I, I like knowing the it's backgrounds the of things. I don't yes. know why. It just it, it, it mm-hmm. rings bells for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you know, in your own spiritual evolution, you um, eventually became Jewish. Yes, you um, converted to Judaism. And I wonder how that, the Jewish worldview, the Jewish sense of time, um, does that all, um, has that also flowed into how this has developed in you as a writer? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, I, 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 like I said earlier, I, I left the church when I was 15 mm-hmm. um, and um, replaced Catholicism with anthropology and Ultimately, uh, that that did fine for me for about twenty years. Um, I called myself an atheist, um, and um, and I was okay with that uh, until I became a mother at thirty five, mm-hmm. and 
suddenly cultural relativity didn't do the job for me anymore Um, because I had my own personal child growing up in my own culture, and I had to decide what aspects of that culture I wanted to convey to Dan uh, and what aspects of it seemed um, too damaging or or stupid or destructive to um, to perpetuate for another generation mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden i was I was trying to make decisions about um, how to um, what sort of framework I could bring to his childhood and I knew that I wanted something authoritative for that uh, for for that task um, i I didn't really want to trust um, whatever was the the latest um, psychological fad for right. bringing up children. You know, like, I, I just didn't feel that giving him stickers for being good was, like, a really good foundation for an ethical human right. being. Right. And so, um, I, and, and, and because I was, I was brought up as a Catholic, I was used to religions that had at least 2,000 years of, like, right. road testing. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I, uh, uh, anything much younger than that was, was not of any great interest to me. Um, and I also discovered, as I, as I thought more clearly about why I left the church, um, I began to realize that for me, um, the incarnation was the insuperable barrier to faith. Hmm. That was the, the point past which I could not get. And so I began to realize that if I simply traced the roots of my religion back one generation, I, um, I reached the religion that Jesus practiced as opposed to the religion that deified Jesus. And, uh, and a lot of the problems that I had um, disappeared. Okay. Um, and uh, and the, the moral and ethical framework that I had really valued in Catholicism and that, that sense of responsibility and the, and, and the guilt, I believe that guilt is a good thing. Um, <laughs> you know, the sense that you, you, know, you do things and you've got to, you know, It was there them. for a reason, right. That's right. Guilt uh-huh. is good. Uh-huh. So um, it, that was all there waiting to, to be accessed again. Mm-hmm. Now, I picked up the Holocaust, so I, I I lost the incarnation, but I picked up the Holocaust as a major theological problem. Okay, and, uh, yeah, so it wasn't again. There was your um, trade off. Yeah, that was my trade off, uh-huh. and and it was in the process of um, beginning to think in terms of, uh, you know, first I was reading on my own, and then I began studying uh, Judaism with uh, a, a rabbi and um, moving towards uh, a formal conversion, um, and it was in that context that I began to write the Sparrow. Um, while that was a process, right? While that was ongoing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah because I had decided to bring religion back into my life after, after 20-some years mm-hmm. and into the life of my, of my family. Um, and I thought, well, I have changed a great deal since I was 15, and the church has changed a great deal since 1965. And, mm-hmm. um, but they were still playing the guitar music. They were still, they're still playing the guitar music. <laughs> um, but... I, I felt that I, uh, I needed to go back and look at the religion that I had grown up with yeah. um, as an adult to re-engage with Catholicism as an adult. Um, and that was what I was trying to do in some sense with the Sparrow. I was um, uh, presenting Catholicism the best way I knew how because I didn't, I didn't want to like um, invent a straw man and then triumph over him. I right. really wanted the best I could do for um, for Catholicism, and um, judging judging from the response to the book from you know Jesuits and yeah. and Catholics, uh, I, I guess I did that. Um, but what I discovered as I was writing was that um, I'm bilingual religiously, but I am a Jew. 
Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there is that central Jewish character in this pharaoh as well, mm-hmm. Sophia Mendes. Yes, and, yes, Sophia Mendes. And yeah. her Judaism, and, I think, becomes more and more pronounced yes. <laughs> through the first book and through the sequel. Yes, yes. And it, 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 to bring it back to the notion of time, mm-hmm. there was it, there is a central notion in Judaism. Uh, <laughs> all of life, all of human life is a good news, bad news story. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> if you read the Torah, if you right. read the stories in, in the, the um, first five books of the Bible, a lot of it, especially in Genesis, like good news, bad news. You know, you, um, uh, you have 12 sons. Good news. Mm-hmm. Oh, one of them is killed by robbers. Oh, bad news. Right. Oh, no, wait, he's still alive. Good news. No, he's been sold into slavery in Egypt. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. and, uh, and in a lot of cases, it, what you find out is you don't know whether something is good or bad until many generations have gone by. Right, right. Uh, so the 400 years in, the, uh, in captivity, bad news, you know, but then you're, you're taken out of Egypt and, and, uh, and God gives you Torah, and, uh, and that's good news. So right. uh, it's, that, it's the great sweep of time that allows us to make sense of our lives and the lives of, uh, of, um, of people. Uh, and that's really the the underlying theme in both the sparrow and children of God that God paints on a vast canvas, and that his his brush is time. Mm-hmm. So that it feeds right into it, big time depth for me. Well, and you know, you said as you as you were formulating that answer that you were um, exploring the religion of your. Of your background, Catholicism, through writing about mm-hmm. Jesuits. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I was studying theology um, in the 1990s, which is in the years in which you were writing these books, or these books mm-hmm. were published, um, I remember a professor of what was called systematic theology, which I mostly didn't like because it tried to rationalize <laughs> the whole thing, and it wasn't all quite rationalized. And that's not the fun part anyway. Well, no, yeah. but, but he, they, we, I remember talking about metaphors of God, metaphors of God and how, you know, God mm-hmm. as Father, that's one that, that's just mm-hmm. so universal, and mm-hmm. we don't think about it too hard. But And I remember um, just from the little bit of writing that I'd done, I, I, I'm used on this idea of God as author. Oh, and yes, what we absolutely. learn, right? Yeah. What we learn about yeah. what we can learn if we're thinking theologically about yeah. the oh, nature well, of God I, I, through writing, and so I mean, it seems right. what I was say is, yeah. you know, you didn't just write about Jesuits and this captivating Jewish figure of Sophia Mendes. You you created a couple of worlds. I created a world, a male and female. I made them even yeah, exactly. <laughs> I separated the dry <laughs> land from the yeah well, exactly. So talk I was to recapitulating me about Genesis, yeah. right? Yeah. And did you yeah. did it feel like that, or is that something I that, didn't notice it until afterwards? Uh-huh. I'm kind of an idiot savant as a, as a writer. Okay. You know, I get my hands on the keyboard and I run with it. Right. Uh, and it's later that I figure out what I'm doing and what, what it's all about. I, I, and I'm a, an absolutely relentless editor, and it's not until I'm really on my 50 or 60th mm-hmm. um, revision that I began to really get what these books are about. I mean, so you created a couple of species. You species, created the inner lives yeah. of individual people. You created a yeah. planet with flora yeah. and fauna. Fauna and, and, an, uh, and, and weather. I had meteorology. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Geology. Paleontology. Yeah. What did you, I mean, so if I ask you the question this way, and, and maybe this remove of years is good, um, you know, what did, what, what would you say you learned about well, the creator uh, God of Genesis? I'll tell this, you, I, I got I, I, I learned something really both horrible and really interesting. Um, if God is an author, as devout readers of the Bible are encouraged to believe, then I know why there's evil. I've solved the problem of evil. It makes a better story. <laughs> 
no conflict if there's no evil. Isn't there some, you can't, there's some something awful Tell him what it's saying that Ellie Wiesel <laughs> likes to quote that God made the world, God made man because he loves stories. Yeah, yeah. Or you could turn it around and say that God, people made God because they love stories too, right. you know. Um, yeah, I, uh, uh, while I was writing this, um, especially in the second book, um, uh, in, in Children of God, uh, I have brought my main character, Emilio Santos, home. He is a damaged, angry man. He's a Puerto and, Rican uh, Jesuit. Puerto Rican Jesuit, yeah. Uh, and he is the, he, he believes he is the sole survivor of this, um, Jesuit mission to another planet. Mm-hmm. And, um, and his relationship with God is, um, it's what the Catholics call, his, he's a bridal mystic. It is an intensely personal, emotional uh, love story for him. Um, and Love story with lots of falling outs, too. Yes, but, mm-hmm. but it, what happens to him feels like a personal betrayal by God. It's mm-hmm. like it's a spousal relationship. It's the anger that you that that a spouse feels upon discovering um uh infidelity. And that is when this just, you know, not to again not to give away the plot or to to go yeah. into details no. people Something won't know, but when he, this happened, this yeah. this this mission that he goes on which comes to feel like the meaning and purpose of his life, which is Absolutely. You know, incredibly yeah. important and Thrilling and historic, but but then thing, things go terribly wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that betrayal you're talking about. Yes, and it it it's as though uh, he comes to God from a very great distance. Emilio does, and and he feels as though he has been led by God to love God in this personal and and deeply emotional way, mm-hmm. and um, and when it all goes to hell. He, he 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 has to ch- face up to the question of the, either it has been blind dumb luck what happened to him from start to finish mm-hmm. there is no meaning to it the mission or purpose purpose the part, mission the yes. purpose everything uh-huh. he thought he uh-huh. you know, he really believed that he was doing God's will and he was he was being drawn along to do that mm-hmm. and that at each step in the in the in the, the process of this mission coming to pass that that God has stepped in and, and it was a miracle. It, mm-hmm. it was made to happen. Mm-hmm. And he either has to give all of that up or he has to believe, he thinks, that God is vicious. And and he doesn't know what to do with that. He mm-hmm. just doesn't know where to go with that dilemma. Um, and that's pretty much where he is left on the uh, at, at the end of the first book. He can name what happened to him. He can... He has finally been able to vomit up this this poison that he has been keeping to himself for fear of destroying the faith of of other priests, and he is finally able to talk about it. And um, he's not over it by any by any means at all. And so the children of God takes him past that moment, and it, that book begins to deal with what do you do with an irreversible tragedy, with a catastrophe that simply cannot be undone. Um, and Emilio tries all the ways that people try. I mean, he tries burying himself in work. He tries forgetting it. He tries drinking. He tries drugs. He tries everything right. he, he can. He falls in love. He leaves the yeah, order. He falls in yeah. love. He yeah. falls in love. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and even that is is taken away from him. And so um, he's he's forced into this uh, need to go back to this planet and to see from the span of life that uh, that Moses had. 
What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, for example, uh, you know, because of the relativistic effects, uh, Emilio does not, while he oh, is I in see. transit, he does not age right. at the same rate that All he right. would have. If he, so that well, extended yes. span So when he life, goes uh-huh. back, you know, he's 120 years old, like mm-hmm. Moses. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And so he can see this this span of four generations and what has happened on the, the planet. And, mm-hmm. um, and I've right. completely forgotten why we started right. this. <laughs> so no, so so again, again, there's that theme of yours that it is only across the you, generations you don't that we can begin to it. see yeah. what the moral of the story was, or whether in yeah. fact it was yeah. tragic. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, and as it happens, at the very end, he finds that there might actually have been um, that that all of this can be made sense of. That there was something that God needed these three species to be together in order to accomplish, that they are more together than they are in part, that there is a kind of, of um, uh, a sort of music that um, can only be heard if all three species come together. Now, is that, you know, is, is that God doing that? Is it something that we find by looking hard enough? Is it, you know, do we impose meaning or is it there to be discovered? Um, those are the kinds of questions that I, that I find enduringly interesting well all right and something else that's very interesting um and again i do i do feel that this reflects your jewish view of the world um Mm -hmm. is that all along the way i mean that there's a real there's a complexity there's an ambiguity right yes um ethical intent and ethical action themselves <laughs> Even at their seemingly purest, no good are deed highly, goes unpunished. Right? Yeah. No, you said in my books, no good deed ever goes unpunished. Now, now, how? What do you mean by that? And and what? what how does? What is that? How does that reflect your? You know, your view of the world, your, your understanding world of these things. Uh, just because you meant well. I guess, again, I have to go back to my mom. Um, you know, you were saying earlier that uh, um, that God is father figure. Uh, is something that people don't uh, don't even think about, and I, th- I guess in a lot of ways, uh, for me, God is more of a mother figure, uh, and I don't mean that in that kind of trendy gender neutral sort uh-huh, of uh-huh. way. Um, my mother was the source of rules, and she was the source of um, what was to be done and what was not to be done, uh-huh. um, and yet she never. She was a very remote figure. She was very silent. She was, um, uh, in many ways, unapproachable. And um, and you only found out about the rules by uh, when you were punished for having broken them. <laughs> you know? I think that's that's a thought, pretty classic view of God, I think. <laughs> yeah, if you would just give us a hint, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's been pointed out that uh, it's kind of a dirty trick for God to just have, like, prophets. Mm. <laughs> Why? Why does he make it so hard? Why? Mm-hmm. Why not just tell everybody? Why? Mm-hmm. Why does like one guy get this information, and mm-hmm. then you know it's up to us to somehow figure out which is you know which guy to believe? And it's just intensely complex in a way that it doesn't actually need to be. And mm-hmm. um, so, <laughs> but as you say, it does make for good stories. It makes for good stories, exactly. Mm-hmm. But there is in me that need to that, that sense that. Um, uh, Meaning well isn't enough. My mom meant well mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and uh, and she would interfere with people's lives in ways that she thought were irreproachable and very helpful, and they often weren't. <laughs> right. And then her feel, 
feelings were hurt because she, you know, people were not grateful for the interference in their lives that that she brought to them. Um, and in a lot of ways, it was it was a tragic life, and uh, um, that inability to communicate clearly uh, was really uh, it didn't serve her well. Um, so there is that that sense in me that just because you you mean things well, just because you uh, you are trying to help, doesn't necessarily make what you've done helpful or welcome. Uh, and there's a disconnect for a, in a lot of what we do. I mean, <laughs> George Bush meant for things to go real well in Iraq. <laughs> right. Right. I don't think he did that to be evil. I think mm-hmm. he really believed it was going to go fine and it would be, you know, well, and, and also, and that kind of statement <laughs> it, 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 it is also, you know, that's where I see you in, in, in your novels being an anthropologist, um, mm-hmm. which is often... Um, not in the first instance wanting to judge or yeah. label, but wanting to understand. Trying to get it. Right. Trying to understand. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, yeah. How do they see it? Here, so here, for example, here's, I'm just, I've, you know, I've taken some notes from, from the writing. So Emilio Santos is at some point in this extended narrative where, you know, he's, he's on the, he's on Rakat, he's back at home. He's explaining this uh, to his fellow Jesuits, I believe, in this Mm-hmm. Passage, and he's saying, and they, and they, they, he's describing some of these horrific things that happened um, to him and others, which we also learn later from another side had reasons that were incomprehensible and perhaps yes. not so horrific. Yes, in, Emilio doesn't have that in the execution. Story. He doesn't, but he, but he's charged with trying to defend these things, and he says mm-hmm. to his fellows, "I'm not defending them. I'm trying to explain to you what happened and why." Um, uh, but it is their society, and they pay their own price. For their own way of life, um, and we pay know, a price for ours as well. Right. Yes. Yes. And he and he points out that uh, uh, in our society, um, the um, the the overpopulation and the um, uh, the poverty of children are right. the coin in which we pay uh, for the freedom to reproduce as we please. Right. And on Rakat, it's not that way. And it's you know it, they're very the, the other priests are shocked to to learn. Um, what the uh, it's it, it's um, it's very green <laughs> on the other planet. It's it's uh, it's it's ecologically sustainable, mm-hmm. and there's cannibalism and, of, a, of a sort. Uh, well, it's not cannibalism. Well, it's yeah. eat eating. Right. Okay, <laughs> it's only cannibalism if you eat your own species. Right. Oh, okay. Um, oh, but... <laughs> I didn't know that that was the definition. Oh, sure. But there yeah, is no, there it's, is otherwise it's the just consumption of sentient beings. Yeah, well, domesticated yeah. prey, as you say, yeah. but who've been who've yeah. been who've yeah. been. Uh, Essentially, also bred for intelligence, and yeah, right, because the um, the Janata breed their tools; they don't manufacture them. Mm-hmm. It's it's a you know genetic engineering as opposed to manufacturing. Right. You know, another theme that is so much there is in your writing and your in your stories is um, a sense I have that there's something at the, at one and the time same time exquisitely sacred. And also, kind of treacherously primal, in yeah. in what happens between and among human beings, and especially the people they're closest to, whether that's family or friendship or the communities we end up in, whether we planned it or not, or you know something you've used this term spiritual kinship. And I wonder, um, you know, and in 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 on Rakhat, it's it's different species, in fact, uh, encountering and then 
and then working out new ways of living, you know, in fact, thrown together. But it's also, it's also these, these people, these, uh, this funny mixture of a Jesuit and a linguist and a, and a, and our, uh, this Jewish, our, I don't know what you'll call her, expert in artificial intelligence or just this brilliant woman um, and scientists um, who travel together, who end up living yeah, for years, right? Yeah, who end up yeah, just inhabiting. Yeah. And I, so... Um, I wonder, do, do you have a sense, like, we'll just, I'll just say it this way, I'll be kind of personal. So, as you say, in, in the large, long sweep of time, if you can look across generations, you can, you, can, you can sometimes make sense, or you can see a sense there that's not immediately obvious. Mm-hmm. In terms of these intimate, <laughs> messy, uh, often seemingly coincidental relationships that define our lives, I mean... Is your understanding of God, um, is God intimately involved in that, connected to that? Yeah, or does, are we does kind does of God like with that? that? <laughs> exactly. Or is that really kind That's of what my husband says. I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> because that makes it even worse if, you know, oh, my God, is he doing this on purpose? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I personally do not believe that God micromanages things. I believe that we... Um, uh, we find meaning, and that, and a lot of people do find uh, that they can, can they can tolerate ambiguity and anxiety and uh, all of uh, big, overwhelming um, emotions are somehow uh, more tolerable uh, if they can step back and say, "Well, it's God's will," or um, right, right. Uh, "I'm going to uh, step back, let let go, and let God." You know uh, that it helps a lot of people. Um, I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to that. Um, my theology, oh boy, <laughs> go on, go on. Well, I find it. Um, oh, I'll give you an. I'll give you an example. Okay. All right. Uh, up until now, um, the Big Bang has been the cosmology that has been working for most uh, cosmologists for a long time. But there is this uh, point at which the mathematics break down, and um, they can't quite make the uh, um, the leap from there was nothing and then there is the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, there is a, a, a new cosmology that indicates that um, the universe both expands, as it did after what we've been calling the Big Bang, and also, mathematically, we can see a way in which it would then contract, and it would continue to do this. It would expand and contract and expand and contract. And so the... um, uh, over, over, you're talking like really unimaginable stretches of time now. Um, the, The visualization of that idea in science news was to show um, a diagram that to me looked like, okay, now I'm going to ask you to visualize uh, Steve Martin making a balloon animal. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And he's got one of those long balloons and he twists it and makes it into a series of like sausages. Right, right. Expanded, contracted, expanded, contracted. Mm -hmm. When I I looked at that... um, at that diagram, what came to my mind, unbidden, I wasn't trying for this, I thought, it's the breath of God Hmm. that God breathes in 
and God breathes out. Hmm. And when he breathes in, the universe is, exp- is contracting. And when he breathes out, the universe is expanding. Hmm. Hmm. And I immediately was, was, I was charmed by the, by the metaphor. Um, I liked that a lot. Uh, and then you get also that notion of God breathed over the face of the waters. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, oh, it's just I, poetically, I really, really love that. And so for me, I guess what it comes down to is that God is the largest, most complex, most inclusive, most um, explanatory idea that human beings are capable of imagining. Now, that said, we're primates and our brains are like two and a half to three pounds. <laughs> we're, right. we're doing the best we can. Right. But I would hate to you know, say that we've got a lock on, on universe and deity at this point. Right. <laughs> I am willing to say, well, that's the best we can do. And it's kind of good. It's, it, it has a lot of, of truly um, satisfying uh, elements to it. Um, but whether it bears any resemblance to... What's really out there? I don't know. What's the origin of the title, the sparrow? Is that from a mm. reference in the New Testament? Yes, yes. Not even a sparrow can fall without your father knowing it. I okay. Think that's what, Matthew 15? Right, and that's that micromanagement that I thought you were yeah, yeah. To get well, away from. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, 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 um, and I have often thought that's, that's something that's usually said to people when they are in, in moments of extreme stress, yes. uh, um, when somebody is very ill or, you know, um, some terrible thing has happened. And, and it's supposed to make you feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a sparrow can fall without your father knowing it. God's eye is on the sparrow. There's a, there's right. a hymn. Right. Um, but as one of my characters points out, um, the sparrow still falls. <laughs> God may be watching, um, but it doesn't do the sparrow a whole hell of a lot of good. The mm-hmm. sparrow still hits the ground. And um, that, I think, is something that has to be, uh, it, you know, it, to say that God's eye is on the sparrow, uh, it, it can be a terrible indictment of God, too, can't it? Mm-hmm. That he sees what's happening mm-hmm. and, and does nothing to prevent it or does nothing to deflect it, mm-hmm. you know? So... Uh, Oh, that's why that I say that the, the, the idea that God is micromanaging things is a, that's a real dangerous notion theologically, I think. I mean, you know, in a category of what I what I what I thought of in my notes is irony. But really, I don't <laughs> think irony is the right word. I think, I think <laughs> All it's of irony is, and sarcasm. Well, there's a lot of but there's a, it's what. So there's some iron. There's irony all the way through. Well, but let's just oh, sure. say maybe it's just reality. Maybe, maybe it's maybe yeah. you know. I was just yeah. thinking sometimes of, it's just an accurate portrayal exactly. of what's going on. Well, so you know, just I was thinking about a couple of the characters in 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 the Sparrow and the Children of God. This this science fiction kind of epic that you have, and there's Sophia Mendez, who's Jewish, who you know, as you you wrote, you know, at one point early on when we get to know her, you said the Torah taught choose life. And but the story of Sophia Mendez's life, yes, you know, at that point, especially when we first meet her, yeah, she chose life she and chooses, survived. Yes, she yeah, sold her she, body. She, she sold her mind. Right. She becomes a prostitute because it was right. that or starve. Right. And then you have, uh, on a lighter note, but really no less <laughs> poignant, you have, you have a Jesuit named D. W. Yarbrough. Yarbrough. Yeah, D. W. And he's a doll. describing himself. He's he's been talking to. Uh, 
one of the women, very formative woman in the novel, Anne, he says, Anne, the good Lord decided to make D.W. Yarbrough a Catholic, a liberal, ugly and gay, and a fair poet, and then had him born in Waco, Texas. Now, I ask you, is that the is work that of a serious Is that the work deity? of a serious deity? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, D.W. sees God as a, as a cosmic comedian. Yeah. But I, I guess you know what I say, what I'm saying, what I'm understanding, yeah. is, and really sympathizing sure. with oh, is no, you're, yeah. you are dancing across this line because on the one hand, I think, in, in as much the scientist in you as anything else, sure. loves sure. to think about the breath of God, but not so much the micromanaging God, and yeah. yet, um, yeah. I think you are fascinated with the curious and beautiful and tragic details of real life. Oh, yeah. Which also, even in their tragedy and irony, seem too amazing not to matter to not you know not to have some kind of creativity well, they to behind us. them. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. matter to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wonder. I'm just thinking of this for the first time, but maybe it is that need to to make those small things matter that we. Um, that we tell one another about them. I don't know. Um, maybe that's the origin of storytelling, is that, that need to, to to communicate clearly. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. But um, Well, if you think about it theologically, I mean, if you think, is that also in telling... I mean, do we, do we need God to, to know about us in order for our stories to matter? Or do is, we is, reach out to God with our stories? Oh, do we? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's. I'd, I'd have to think about that for a while. Hmm. I don't think the, the, that our need to matter necessarily implies God. Okay. <laughs> I'm not seeing that as causal. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't make the arrow go in that direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, Just because we need something or we would like something doesn't right. necessarily mean that it exists. I remember speaking with um, um, a uh, cosmologist... Um, Channel Eleven. I know. bet he didn't ask you. She is a she. No, she didn't talk about the brother, but she did. She talked about how a lot just because we have because we intuit something doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. Right. She said yeah. we intuit that the sky is yeah. blue, but it's not. Oh, sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and things that we intuit. I mean, all a lot of the tragic misunderstandings in life come from the from fact intuition. that we intuit something right. that turns out to be dead wrong. Right. Yeah. And you know, running through your fiction, um, there is. And especially through the, the Sparrow and uh, and Children of God, there's there are agnostic doubters or yes. atheist doubters who are tempted by faith because yes. of what they're experiencing, yeah. and there are, there are all these Jesuits who've made vows. Yes, and there are people of faith who are tempted by despair yeah. and a lack of yes. faith. Yes, yes, um, exactly. I, wanted, I think. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I wanted to read. Let me just. Uh, I thought I would read something from Anne. Um, what is I'm, she and I are on first name basis? What was her last name? Oh, Anne Edwards. Anne yes. Edwards. Yes. yes. Um, he's saying, you know, here's this just kind of a classic passage. Um, let me just see. Um, oh, maybe that's not the right one. Oh, here's good. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, There was part of Anne Edwards that was thrilled about the discovery, that gloried in being this close to history in the making. And deeper, in a place she rarely inspected, there was a part of her that wanted to believe, as Emilio seemed to believe, that God was in the universe making sense of things. 
Once long ago, she'd allowed herself to think, to think seriously about what human beings would do confronted directly with a sign of God's presence in their lives. Uh, the Bible, that repository of Western wisdom, was instructive either as myth or as history, she'd decided. God was at Sinai, and within weeks, people were dancing in front of a golden calf. God walked in Jerusalem, and days later, folks nailed him up and then went back to work. Faced with the divine, people took refuge in the banal, as though answering a cosmic multiple-choice question. Um, a vanishingly small number of people would recognize God and had decided years before, and most of them had simply missed a dose of Thorazine. <laughs> I mean, that's actually, that's a more, in some ways, yeah. a more lighthearted passage, yeah. but there are lots yeah. of very earnest discussions in here. And, sure. and she also says at one point to one of the Jesuits that she does not require heaven or hell to scare her into acting like a decent to scare, person. I don't need hell to scare me right. into acting behaving decently or or uh, having to bribe me. But I think that Christianity, and you really see this in the in the in the discussions that happen among between these Jesuits and certainly in Emilio Santos who goes through this huge experience um internally um the relationship between doubt and faith in Christianity is organic but it's fraught. <laughs> yes. And yeah and in Judaism uh, it's also organic, and I think less uh, scared of that. And I just, yeah, I'm curious about. You said that you were, you were exploring Judaism as you were writing the first book, and and uh, and, and I made a formal conversion when I was a, about two thirds of the way through it. Okay, yeah. and I'd, I'd started studying about eight years ago. Was that something that also evolved um, in you and in the way you, as the author participant in those discussions, took part? Well. Um, I was probably reflecting the kinds of ideas that I'd had over the over the prior uh, years of of um, uh, studying Judaism and uh, clarifying what I thought and what I was bringing to that study. Um, what what I wanted to do, and I think one of the reasons that this book, that the Sparrow remains um, as as um, as widely read as it is, and no, believe me, nobody is more surprised than I. The Jesuits in space, you know, has, <laughs> has done this well. But um, I, I, I think that the reason that people still respond to it so strongly is that no matter where you are on that spectrum of belief, from flat-out atheism to bridal mystic, um, there is always somebody in the sparrow who is there to articulate for you what you might be thinking. Um, you are both exposed to the thinking and the belief of someone whose notion of, of uh, religion is very different from your own, but who does so in a way that, that makes you understand where they're coming from. And then, after um, as, as clear and poetic a description of that person's understanding uh, can be, then there's somebody who will, who will make a joke out of it in, in another line. And so... I, I, my own, um, I, I guess my own theology is all of the above. I mean, mm -hmm. I can, I can defend right. all right. of it. Okay. <laughs> Except right. maybe the bridal mystic part. Yeah. You never quite went that far. And, and I guess what I'm saying also is I think Judaism allows you that scope. Yes. Yeah. You're not supposed to, uh, you're, you're not supposed to study the Torah by yourself. It's actually, there's a rule against it. You have to have at least one study partner because there should always be somebody there who can say, yeah, but consider it this way. Mm -hmm. Argument is built into Judaism. 
the Talmud is basically a you right, know like right. a, a multi-century argument. Mm-hmm. Moses <laughs> quarreled with God. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, everybody, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. yeah uh, and uh, and uh, Abraham, you know, mm-hmm. starts out by saying, "Yeah, but wait a minute." Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, the, uh, uh, the the very word um, Israel is means right. wrestles with God. Right. So uh, that uh, the the welcoming of argument and the insistence on thinking of things in more than one way, the absolute rejection of the idea that there's only one way to interpret anything, um, is certainly what drew me to. Uh, what made me feel at home hmm. in uh, in Judaism. Plus, I like the stories. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, music is a very important, yeah. uh, almost a character and backdrop to this yeah. whole it is story. In, it, you know, it is in my Doc Holliday book, too. I mean, it's really, really? amazing to well, me. So, oh, I mean, God, just, yeah. So music is, we. this life on another planet is discovered by way of music, yeah. this sound yeah. that is de- de- yeah. de- deciphered as music, and, and that's how... That's how human beings make this first contact. And, yes, and, and at he, the very end of Children of God, music is a way that God right. may be communicating with us again. Right. Yeah. Um, I, one of the most interesting things uh, that I have learned uh, about um, uh, human biology is that when we have a stroke on the left side of the brain and the ability to speak and understand spoken language is, uh, is destroyed, we retain the ability to sing and to recite prayers because mm. that's mm. on the other side of the brain. That's on the right side. Mm. I think that's fascinating. Mm. I love that. Right. I love that fact because what it also tells me is that um, uh, in, in wholeness and in health, we are not required to choose between the left side of our brains and the right side of our brains. That... Um, uh, a scientist uh, um, need not reject religion simply because it isn't a, a collection of uh, empirical data organized into a body of theory that generates testable hypotheses. Right, okay? right, right. Okay, that's science, all mm-hmm. right? But you don't have to – it's like saying, ah, well, music isn't that either. Mm-hmm. You don't have to reject music because it isn't a body of empirical facts. <laughs> and <laughs> and conversely, that a person who prays doesn't have to reject rationality, which is also That's on the right. other side of our brain. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. exactly. To be whole. They're mm-hmm. both there. They're both there. And in that tension, uh, in, in the, the uh, effort to make the right and left sides of, uh, of our brains work together, that to me is when we're at our best as a species. I like that a lot. I mm-hmm. like the, trying to make it work together. But again, you know, here's this this down this down to earth realism. Also, for example, the beautiful, beautiful music that these Jesuits and these scientists hear on Earth that then takes mm-hmm. them into this adventure yes. that changes them, that changes the other yes. world. It's beautiful music, and it turns out that the figure behind that is incredibly, unbelievably cruel. But so, there's a reason he's cruel, too. There's a reason he's cruel. Okay. But, I mean, again, it's not unsullied beauty. It's, yes. It, yeah. There's nothing pure yeah. about it. There's nothing untouched yeah. about it. It's touched well, by yeah, all I this mean, complexity. Think about, think about um, uh, Mozart. I mean, and, the, and uh, um, uh, like Salieri says, <laughs> you know, how could this creature... Have made such sublime music, and yeah. you like that, don't you? I love that. Yeah, yeah, I love that Mozart. <laughs> you know, like fart jokes. And stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, 
this is a little more serious, but it's actually okay. along the same. I'll try. Lines. I'll try to settle down. All right. Well, okay. So I mean, let's move move beyond. Move into some okay. of your other work. Um, here's a thread of grace, which was <laughs> your next book. Um, has kind of a, a few pages of preface, and we are hearing. We're getting this narrative description of a somewhat unstable young mother and this frail son who she overprotects. Yes. Yes. And we learn at the very end of this chapter that her name is Cl- Clara Hitler. Yeah. And, um, you know, here's something you write. So this is you, I suppose, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, looking at Hitler's mother, looking beyond yes. his generation and, his and looking and beyond for his roots, generation, right? Yes. And looking. Yeah. So, you know, here's something um, you wrote about him as a boy or even growing up as a man whenever he looked in the mirror he would see his mother's eyes china blue and frightened frightened of dirt of her husband of illness and of god clara's son was frightened too frightened of priests and hunters of cigarette smokers and skiers of liberals journalists germs and dirt of gypsies judges and americans he was frightened of being wrong of being weak of being effeminate it goes on and on um so what you've done there is, you know, you this is a this is a study in fear as a driver of yeah. human history, which of course is paradoxical because fear manifest often looks like tyranny or power yes. or looks frightening. Yes, yes. This seems to me like an amazing example of what you can do writing fiction that you can't yeah. do in the same. I way didn't make any of that history. up. That's you all true. Know. Yeah, I know, but I didn't make that up. But what is it? But you present. <laughs> he was an amazing bundle of fear. But it he really was. He was scared of everything. Narrative description yes. illuminates history in this essential way. Yeah. This absolutely yeah. essential way that you could not. I know you're saying you didn't make it up, but somehow not writing, but writing it as in fiction that, rather than nonfiction. Yes, yes, because it allows me to. Um, well, just to ask the. Uh, uh, oh God, that moment in that um, in that prologue to A Thread of Grace, where mm-hmm. um, you know Clara has already lost uh, two children. Right. And um, and her third child is is so frail, uh, he almost doesn't survive. And and she prays that God would let this child live. And it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And it's also supremely ironic if you believe that God is micromanaging the world. Right, to go right, back to that right, theme, right. that He lets this one live. Right. You know. Right. <laughs> Why not the little girl? You know, maybe little Ida would have been better for the world. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I really believe that, that you can do things with fiction that you can't do with, uh, with straight history. And a lot of times, especially with uh, A Thread of Grace, and I think with um, 8 to 5 Against, which is the book about Doc Holliday, I think people are going to say, well, you know, there's so much fact here. Why didn't you just write nonfiction? And the oh. answer is the, the nonfiction's out there. Right. But to put it together in a way that gives you a real insight into the the inner lives of people to make sense of the historical facts in an emotional and psychologically psychological way that 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 reads true that's right. what fiction can do for us i think the anthropologist in you is in there too somehow y- oh, yeah. your your point of view or your angle of approach Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that because you have to understand it from to understand the, just yeah. to understand just understand and to, to, and to know the context mm-hmm. to see it with anthropology one of the old things that we used to talk about was that you had, I don't know if they still teach this but 
you were you were taught in social and cultural anthropology that there was an emic view and an etic view of the world, and that uh, one of them was to understand the, the a culture from inside, from the from a participant, from somebody who's from a native's point of view. Right. Let's say that, and and the other was to see it in a more systematic and outside way. So you were simultaneously trying to understand things from the inside and from the outside to see it systematically and to see it as a felt reality. Uh, and that is also something that uh, that I think you can do uh, as uh, as a novelist. Um, as I am writing, my the, when my hands are on the keyboard and I'm and I'm uh, first just sketching the scenes and the and the dialogue and all of the rest of it. That's I'm trying to feel it from the inside. Right. I'm trying to be there w- with the characters. Later on, as I am refining the structure and polishing the prose and discovering the themes and bringing them out more clearly. Then I am, I am looking at it like an anthropologist from the outside and trying to get that sweep, uh, the structural uh, uh, sweep from start to finish to give it a shape. Um, so the, it, I constantly go back and forth between those two approaches to the story. Now, the... Um is this right that the that the title of the book, um, A Thread of Grace, and you know we should say that this is about um, it's hard to summarize. Oh, briefly, it's the, it's the, the Ju- Jewish underground near Genoa during the Nazi right, occupation right. of Italy. So it's peopled yeah. by Jews and a German, <laughs> um, yeah. Italians. But it's yeah, I, kind I of, had to make a, a, a Nazi doctor. Yeah, and not uh, I, I had to make him comprehensible because I absolutely reject the idea that um, uh, what happened in Germany was that the whole country uh, went like. They were psychotic for eight years. <laughs> right. He's he's a fully he may, fully rounded sure. human being with full of contradictions. He's funny. Like most of us, yeah. Yeah, he's amusing. Uh, he's mediocre. Mm-hmm. He's ordinary. Mm-hmm. That's what's important about Schramm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, you know he's a kind of not so very good doctor. Um, right. And even and he's self aware enough to say when you know when we when we fired a third of the doctors in Germany for being Jewish, it opened up a lot of doors. Right, right. <laughs> and he he that's how he gets sucked into it. He benefits. His family benefits. Right. And he just step by step he keeps going. But this Hebrew phrase from which you took the title of the book, um, no matter how dark the tapestry God weaves for us, there's always a thread of grace. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you, can you, can you uh, internalize a statement like that? Does that make sense to you in light of the Holocaust? I mean, I know well, it, it makes sense in light of the story you tell that I think is like mm-hmm. one of these untold mm-hmm. stories of people, yeah. of, of, of people surviving well, in Italy and being cared for, in fact. But this was yes. I mean, it was it was something. Eighty eighty five percent of the Jews of Italy survived the Holocaust. Right. That's the thread of grace. Okay, it's not much in a vast dark tapestry. Okay, but that's the thread, that's the thread. of grace. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. People in it. It's an extraordinary story, mm-hmm. um, and hardly known at all because the Italians themselves don't talk about it. Right. Uh, and uh, the uh, it's just begun to be better known like because like, a lot of elderly um, people are writing their memoirs from those times uh, now. It sounds like it was kind of not very self-conscious. It just was the way things were. The, the, yeah, that Italian culture sure. just rejected yeah. without even analyzing or intellectualizing or no. Yeah, it was it was well, uh, and they knew. I mean, I, uh, they knew the threat. The um, uh, the. Um, the risks they were taking. Uh-huh. I mean, people knew that uh, it was a capital offense to get caught with a Jew on your land, even. Right. Uh, and uh, um, the whole of the book is 
an explanation of why the Italians were different. And it's, and mm-hmm. it's multi-layered and multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just as one way of thinking about how this happened, um, when in, in our culture, uh, if, you, uh, um, if you see somebody fall down on the ice, you live in Minnesota, okay? Yeah. If, if you see somebody fall down on the ice right in front of you, what do you say? <sighs> I say, oh, no, are you all right? Yeah, are you all right? Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Okay, it's absolutely, absolutely uh, um, automatic for us. And the response that you will get is, yeah, I'm fine, or right. fine, thank you. Okay, right. now, in our culture, when you say, uh, uh, how are you, what's the automatic response? <laughs> fine. I'm fine, thanks. Yeah. E- even if the person who just asked you that question is your oncologist, right. Right. <laughs> you know, you'll right. say, I'm fine, thank you. Right. In Italy, if they see somebody fall... They will go up and they, they will say, prego. They will say, please, may I help you? Mm. See the difference? Mm-hmm. I'm fine, thanks. Uh, you know, how are you? I'm, are you okay? I'm fine, thanks. That is basically a code, cultural code for um, I am not heartless enough to uh, pretend I didn't see you fall and step over your body, but I, I do have an appointment <laughs> at 10 o'clock. Okay. So I'm looking for permission to be right. able to, you know, go on my way. Right. In Italy, people, they they want to be part of helping you. <laughs> you know, right. they want to get you up, and they'll take you to the emergency room. Right. And you know, I mean, it's they, they, they um, that's what life is for, right. hmm. is to be involved like that. And so, it's just a very different culture, hmm. and it's one that makes people from around the world feel so welcome. I mean, everybody can imagine living in Italy. Right. <laughs> and, and this book about the Holocaust, which is about Italy, it's, it's about the Holocaust. It's also about Italy, which which has where you have some roots in your. Yes, person. Yeah. But um, yeah. I mean, was this a book you um, was this a history that you needed to claim and explore oh, as yes. part of being yeah. Jewish, which was a yeah. choice? It was it was really interesting for me. I got started by by reading um, Alexander Stiele's book, um, Benevolence and Betrayal, Five Italian Jewish Families Under Fascism. Mm. And I was so ignorant of modern Italian history and of Jewish history in Italy that, uh, you know, it, I was my first reaction to that was <laughs> I didn't know there were Jewish, Italian Jews. Right, you know, right, right. I, I thought I was the only one, right? Yeah. So um, uh, every, everything I learned as I read that book was just fascinating to me. And I thought I was in the middle of writing um, <clears throat> Children of God then. Excuse me. Oh, when you were reading that. When I was that reading book, that uh-huh. book. And I, and I just thought, i got to do something with this. This will, this will allow me to connect my, um, you know, my, my, my heritage as mm-hmm. an Italian, with my choice to be Jewish, and it'll just—I knew that it would be something that would uh, the research would uh, would be just—it um, would keep me moving on that. And it took seven years of research to complete that book. Mm. So um, you got to be really <laughs> in deep and to, there, to, to sustain an interest that long. And there's not a lot of theologizing. I mean, there's so much overt theologizing and. In Children of God and in the Sparrow. Yeah, but this is about ethics. Yeah. This is about yeah. ethics. In, okay, yeah, okay. This is about ethics. In, yeah. this is, uh, with Children of God and, uh, and the Sparrow, that's theology. You know, what do we mm-hmm. believe about God? In, in um, A Thread of Grace, these are all people who grew up and they have religions. They, 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 they were brought up in a religious and, and uh, ethical framework one way or another. They don't have time to think. They don't have time to, to make decisions. They just have to react. It was one of the reasons that I put that book in present tense, is I wanted you to feel that um, 
the lack of information that people had, the the quickness with which their decisions to go left or go right had and to be made. And even you're saying the lack of time for the luxury of theology. They, yeah, exactly. They had there was no time to think it over. They mm-hmm. just did what they what what came to them to do. Mm-hmm. Did you know? I, I I think I already asked you this question about an hour ago, but I mean, I just want to ask it again in terms of of the Holocaust and you writing about this as someone who's chosen to be Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how, how do you think, where, where does your theology come into that? Where, well, thinking I about mean, this is, this is another one of those, you know, good news, bad news stories. I mean, yeah. here's the thing of it. If, um, you know, what, what you know about being Jewish is that it can get you killed right. and, uh, uh, and that no one will rescue you. <laughs> God, you know, <laughs> if he wasn't there during the Holocaust, he's not going to help you out when you get cancer. I mean, that's right. isn't that awful? Right. But that's, I mean, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, and where do you go with that? Um, so the the Holocaust is um, it's where your face is pushed into that notion of who's responsible, who's. Is is there micromanagement going on here, or is this um, is this just humans as a, a vicious little species on one tiny little planet that manages to do really horrible right, things right. on a regular basis? Right. Um, uh, all of those, you know, and and my answer is all of the above. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I know there's this. There's this line of uh, of a very intriguing character who comes in kind of in, in the Children of God books, and she's from this species that the Janata who... The, the, predat- the, the predators. The predators, yeah. who are the... Right. So in shorthand, they're the predators. In fact, they, they kind of undergo this evolution, and they then become the prey themselves. But she says... Mm-hmm. Um, she says... She's talking to Sophia, who's the Jewish character, and she's talking to her about how enchanted how inspired she's been by Sophia's message that Sophia herself is doubting you know of a children that we are all she means all species the children of a god so high that ranks and differences are as nothing in his far side and she says if it is a mistake to hope for such a world then it is a magnificent mistake yes <laughs> is that a thought of yours that's mine yes yeah that was that was one of the the few places where i just stepped out and said what I think. <laughs> okay. It's in, the, in another place in Children of God, D.W. Yarbrough is remembered as saying, uh, maybe it's only poetry, but it's poetry to live for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, uh, I also think um, that even if God is, as Emilio comes to think or suspect or be, or, or fear, even if God is only a, a, a remarkably um, persistent character in a bunch of old folk tales. Um, well, now I'm going to have to... I had a thought. Oh, okay. Let's say, let's say that God is only a fictional character, mm-hmm. that he only exists in, in Torah and in, in the New Testament and in the, the, the scriptures of, of various faiths. Let's say that that's the only place he exists. Okay. I, I tend to think that um, fictional characters are in some ways more real than, um, than biological human beings. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll tell you why. Okay, I'm going to okay. give you an example. All right. All right. Think of Victorian England. Uh, how many um, people from that era can you remember? But everybody knows. <laughs> everybody knows right. Sherlock Holmes. Uh-huh. I would say that Sherlock Holmes is more real hmm. than... Then the Charles Dickens novel characters. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The, those fictional characters are more real than the than the anonymous people who came and went and lived and died in East London, and you know, um, or that they endure to teach they in future yeah, generations yeah, there is about. A, there is a reality to them that I think is not to be sneezed at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to be a fictional character like mm-hmm. that is not such a bad fate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I guess all fictional characters don't survive. So, I mean, no, there is don't. a bit of a selection process that That's goes right. on there. That's right. There's Just value as, you know, wait, what, uh, you know, uh, Zeus, mm-hmm. not so good anymore. Uh, you know, Mithras, is the, he hasn't been big for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of, uh, a lot of theological uh, characters that have uh, slowly fallen away. Mm. Um, but uh, uh, others that seem to be more enduring and... Um, even if they, even if their fate is only that they are figments of human imagination and that they are only um, literary constructs, uh, not so bad. Mm. Still, still magnificent. I think. Hmm. You then? Yes, you no, know, I'm going to give you something Jewish. Oh, okay, um, all right. In in Judaism, uh, uh, um, at at, uh, at the end of every every Passover meal, there's a, there's a folk song that we sing, and, and the refrain is Dayenu which right. means it would have been enough. Mm. And, um, and it's a wonderful song. It's great fun to sing, uh, and I will not inflict my voice on you. But, um, <laughs> but it's like if God had only uh, um, brought us out of Egypt, Dayenu, it would have been enough. If God had only given us a Torah, Dayenu, it would have been enough. If God had only given us uh, the Sabbath, Dayenu, it would have been enough. You know? And so, and so I, I'm a great believer in Dayenu. I believe, you know, even if it isn't more, this is enough. Even if, uh, you know... Uh, even if it's only poetry, hey, poetry is a lot. Hmm. Poetry is enough. Hmm. You've said that you you're Jewish and also still agnostic. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the God I almost believe in is a Jewish God. <laughs> <laughs> the God the God I can't quite believe in is, is Yahweh. <laughs> so I mean, we've we've talked a lot about. Um, a number of books. I do, I do want to really briefly, because I before we close in a few minutes, I want to hear about Doc Holliday and the effect he's oh, having on you now. But my I, honey, yeah. yeah. So, but um, you also in just in two thousand eight um, published a book. Um, what's Dreamers sorry? of the Day? Yes, Dreamers yeah, of the Day. Dreamers of the Day with which featured characters like Gertrude Bell and T. H. Lawrence and Winston Churchill. It was a story that took place around the Cairo Conference of 1929, yeah. 21. Which we don't remember at all. Which we don't remember. Which is remember. a live issue in among Arabs. <laughs> well, well, it One created borders we that press on all of us now, including oh, yeah, the, yeah. what we now know as Iraq. I mean, in, so, the, in the space of 11 days, this, this a handful of British diplomats invented the modern Middle East. And, you know, it's their world, but we live in it. Right, right, right. <laughs> and there isn't a blunder they committed that we haven't managed to follow uh, almost in lockstep in the last I mean, so years. there you are again, looking forward, looking backwards to yeah. make sense of now. And it, it just, you know, just in terms of what is very present right now. I mean, right now, most mm-hmm. recently. Yes, in Gaza. In, the, in Gaza. Yeah. And, and also it ends with the, the, uh, an economic collapse. It ends with the 1930s, with the, with the Depression. All right, there's that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> terrifying how... <laughs> 
but I mean, let's say how topical that that book has become. And let's say at the Cairo conference, as in Gaza today, um, or mm-hmm. in Iraq, well, maybe say I would say I would say it this way: um, religion is not in the forefront of these crises, mm-hmm. but it's in the fabric of them. Yes. And I just I'm just curious um, how if you're writing. You know, how does your writing bring you into these these very current conflicts that are closer to them? Or how do you, you know, does it also cause you to see two sides of the issue the way we've been talking oh, about as a novelist where you're always, sure. and as an anthropologist, you're, you're not sure, judging sure. in the first instance your understanding. How yeah. has that work and research influenced the way you're looking at these, these very present crises that do, in fact, it's have a religious, yeah. religious um, implication? Well, it, it, throws me into despair because um, certainly the way the Middle East is set up today, I just don't see any way out. I really, I, I you know, this is an immovable object, uh, Israel, and an irresistible force, which is the Arab world. I just, I, I don't know how this can possibly end well. Mm. Um, and, uh, um, you know, people on both sides have got legitimate beefs. And, uh, and, and uh, one of the things that, that I have discovered uh, uh, while writing these kinds of novels is that um, history, what, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and who's responsible and who's, you know, who started it? That's the question. Who started it? Right. It depends on where you start the story. Hmm. You know, um, one of the reasons that archaeology is such a political thing in the Middle East is that both sides are looking to see who has the oldest claim, you know, mm-hmm. whose right. who's real Where estate do you document start the story? Yeah. is in Kuni form, you know, mm-hmm. who, well, we've got a real estate document here that's on a clay tablet by God. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it depends on where you start the story, who, who owns that land. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you start in 1948, then it's, it's a different uh, answer than if you start in 1921. It's a different answer if you go back further than that. Um, and uh, all the way back. Right, all the way back, uh, you know, there's there's conflict in this region that goes back to like twenty thousand years ago. If you want to get really deep historian right, right. on that, do these characters who you've written about, whether it's the species on Rakat that was of which you that you were the deity that you created, or whether created it's them. these characters yeah. around the Cairo conference, or these these Jews who survived in Italy, um, mm-hmm. do they? Do they stay with you? Are they like old friends? Are they teachers? Do you have some kind of spiritual they're, kinship with them? They are generally, they're like old friends. It's like when you move, you know, mm-hmm. and, you, and you keep in touch with people uh, from the old neighborhood, but less and less as time goes on. Uh, and you're more and more uh, deeply enmeshed with the, you know, with the neighbors that you have today and with the right. friends that are nearby. Uh, uh, certainly with the internet, it's nice to be able to, to email old friends and, uh, and I keep in touch with my, with my old characters because readers email me. And so, and, and when they, like you, if they've just read, uh, the sparrow, they've just picked it up and discovered it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, right now I'm, I'm totally in love with Doc Holliday. Okay. And well, I'm tell just, me about oh, that. You're oh, writing this Doc. novel set in Dodge City in yeah, 1878. Wyatt yeah, Earp, exactly. Doc Holliday. Why- this is, yeah, 1878 is the, uh, is the summer that uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday uh, became friends. And that was a very unlikely but an enduring friendship uh, and, um, and a fascinating one, I think. Um, and most... Uh, in westerns, you ordinarily you start from the notion that the West is the normal point of view, right? right. I'm coming at this with Doc, 
who was uh, Would you born remind in Georgia. me who he was and what he did? Doc Holliday is the, uh, uh, oh, God, um, the, the rap on him is that he's the killer dentist. You know, Doc Holliday was a dentist, <laughs> and he killed people left, right, and center, okay. and, you know, he was a gambler, and right. he, was, he, he died of tuberculosis. Okay. Uh, and uh, so the, um, uh, the, the iconic gambler, tall, thin, wearing black, you know, <laughs> a heavy drinker and a dangerous man, all of those things come originally from the, um, from the figure of Doc Holliday. And in that way, he, uh, he is in, in some ways sort of the Odysseus of, um, of uh, uh, American mythology uh, as, hmm. uh, as Wyatt is the Achilles. Hmm. Um, and that's the take that I'm, that I'm bringing to them. Uh, Doc was, in fact, um, beautifully educated, uh, he spoke um, fluent French. He read uh, the, the classics in Greek and Latin. Um, he played classical piano. Uh, he was uh, also uh, at, at the forefront of scientific development. Uh, dentistry was far in advance of medical science in, uh. in 1870 when he went to dental school. Uh, it is I used to teach anatomy in a... In a um, in a dental school here in Cleveland, and uh, um, when I uh, looked up his transcripts um, at, uh, in, in Philadelphia, uh, it's a very modern um, curriculum that mm. he that mm. he took. Uh, and uh, when he was 22 years old, and he had just begun to have, you know, the, the war was over, Atlanta was rebuilding. Um, he was just beginning to build a practice. Uh, he he was uh, close to being engaged to a young woman. Um, and that was when he he was diagnosed with advanced pulmonary um, tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. He went west because they thought that the dry weather would uh, would be better for him. And he lived for uh, another nine years, so it, it, it was actually pretty good for him. <laughs> but they were very dangerous, very frightening years. And so I'm coming at this story from Doc's point of view. What is it like for a a frail, sick frightened young man to f- suddenly find himself on the rawest edge of the American frontier. And of course he had to look dangerous. Of course he had mm. to present himself mm. as a killer because they wouldn't leave him alone. Otherwise he was prey. He had to look a lot more dangerous than he was. Are you, is he thinking about God and the meaning of life, or are you learning things about God and the meaning of life not from him? Not a lot, him? not a lot. Um, although it comes up, and this is sort of the final frontier for me, um, because uh, I've done Catholicism, I've done Judaism, um, uh, uh, I haven't done Buddhism yet. Uh, I did a little bit of, uh, um, of Egyptian theology uh, for Dreamers of the Day. Uh, these are Protestants. <laughs> oh, okay. Doc, Doc's a Presbyterian, and, yes. uh, uh, and Wyatt is a Methodist, and mm-hmm. uh, those those are new for me. I really, I, I want to get started. So, is there a method? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and you said that he's. That, if there's a method, what is it? <laughs> did you say that he's influencing your musical taste now too? Oh yes, because see, Doc, um, uh, his mother was a piano teacher, and he, from very young he took uh, classical piano lessons, and. Um, I, my tastes personally kind of run towards Van Halen and Def Leppard, you know. Right. <laughs> um, and I actually had to study um, uh, music theory and um, uh, uh, and the 19th century piano um, uh, repertoire in order to be able to, to get where he was. I can't get enough of Chopin now. Right. <laughs> I'm just like t- 
totally knocked out by Chopin. Yeah. And um, and the uh, the the bookends of this story, uh, the, it will begin and end with um, uh, with Beethoven's um, Emperor Concerto, which is something that Doc learns as a as a child with his mother during the war, mm-hmm. and it's their refuge and their bulwark against. Uh, the the grinding poverty that was descending on them, and the fear, and the um, the fact that the the South was losing, um, and it's the way that they handle all of that. Uh, and at the very end of of uh, the book, he will um, play that piece again uh, on a saloon piano hmm. in Dodge City at dawn. Hmm. Uh, and here is this this truly otherworldly music. Uh, drifting out over the prairie, and uh, Wyatt and uh, and Morgan Earp uh, hear it, and Wyatt says to Morgan, "Did you know he could play like that?" And Morgan says, "Hell, Wyatt, I didn't know anybody could play like that. Mm. Mm. They have never heard music like this." And that's Doc's world. That's what's that's what's gone for him. That's what he will never go home to. He's such a tragic character. Mm. <laughs> Do you think you'll ever write uh, science fiction again? I don't know. I don't. I don't seem to plan these things. Um, right, right. I get interested in something, um, I, and I, th- I have been getting interested. <laughs> you know, the two things that are kind of right. beginning to look like they're on the horizon. I have a theory about Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that nobody else has has, has ever come close to, and right. it and it works. It fits the. Um, uh, all of the known facts, and see, that's what I like to do with the historical novels. Is to like, I want to make sense of all of the known facts. I don't want to con- contradict them right. in any way, right. but I want to take them a little further and give them a different spin. So I got that idea kind of brewing, and then I'm getting interested in Benedict Arnold. You are, yeah, and that's another <laughs> another theme in my work is that you know I go after these characters that are um, that tend to be despised. Okay. Right. Uh, right. And, and then I, you try and, to... and then I try to understand mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. because people don't get up in the morning and say, "Oh, I'm going to be horrible today. Right. I can't wait to make everyone hate me." Right. You know? People always think that they're doing the right thing in their own minds. They're doing the right thing, so it's my job to figure out what what they were thinking, right. and to make that comprehensible. Let me ask you this: kind of you know, coming full circle back to the okay. where we started with your your um, your science, where you started as a, as a novelist with your science fiction. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, even now when uh, so we haven't heard transmissions of music from another planet that hasn't happened, no. but no. but there are all kinds of uh, very sophisticated technological devices looking for those things, right? Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, when when there will be some story about you know a potential you know, or even a, a hypothetical story, a, a what if, mm-hmm. what if we did finally yeah. discover life on another planet? There's so Which is based, that's a premise of the sparrow, yeah. What if we actually heard incontestable evidence that there were yeah. sentient species elsewhere in the And universe? that's all yeah. real, what you described, isn't it? I mean, those yeah. people who are listening to those devices. But oh, yeah. there's always oh, sure. this question that I, I have to say I've never quite understood the reasoning behind is this idea that if we did, somehow it would throw the whole of theology and the notion of God out the ah, window. And okay, well, yeah. So I just wondered how you um, think about that. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. While I, I had finished The Sparrow in 1995, and it, was, it had been finally picked up for public, publication, and Random House was working on it, and that summer uh, was, uh, they, they had found uh, a meteorite 
that had uh, that had bounced off of Mars. Mm. Remember, you know, down in the Arctic, every once in a while they find um, these they're dark meteorites and they stand out against the snow and they're really right, easy to right, find. Right. Okay, all right, and they had uh, they had brought one of these things back and they cut it open. They had what they thought might be uh, you know, fossilized uh, single cell uh. life, and to my delight. Within 12 hours on BBC, I was hearing somebody say, well, what does this imply for Genesis? Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, and, and the, the logic that was being followed was that, uh, you know, like if, if uh, so was Mars like, uh, was that just a rough draft? Yeah. You know, did God get, did God get life wrong on Mars? And right. say, oh, it's too cold. Damn, let's move somewhere else where there's water. I know, we'll use water. <laughs> um, you know, so what, what did it imply about uh, Genesis was, uh, uh, and, I, and my, my immediate thought was, mm, maybe things went wrong here, you know? Right. <laughs> what makes you think we're the final draft? <laughs> the pinnacle, <you> know? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. So immediately people thought in terms of, uh, not everybody, obviously, but mm-hmm. uh, there, there was this notion of what, do, what does this mean for Genesis? Does, mm-hmm. And th- there's also the, the, um, the idea that, uh, you know, uh, speaking just within um, the, the Jewish tradition, you have, um, okay, if you get started with Yahweh as kind of a local war god, you know, he's the god of that mountain. Mm. And then there is, uh, you know, the exile um, and uh, the Babylonian exile and... and uh, and the decision is made that well, no, God is here too. God is God is the God of the world. He's right. not just the God of back where we used to live. He's 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 here too. Mm. And then uh, you get an, another big jolt to um, to that theology when um, the Americas are discovered, you know, and none of the animals are mentioned on the ark, you know, and there are people who. Right. Uh, so once again, we have to stretch our idea of what God is to include. All this new life, and so mm-hmm. see, and so what would happen? I think you know if we heard incontestable evidence. And interestingly, the Vatican has come out on this, oh. <laughs> and, and I happen to know that the Jesuits are aware of my book. Um, <laughs> but uh, there was the feeling that if God, you know, if God is a universal God, and that these, that the reaction to this should be these are God's children as well. Mm. God has other children, and we must know them, and that's the the uh, the impetus for for uh, the whole of the sparrow is we must you know God has other children we we have to know them yeah, there's simply no no choice and then and then that that ethical challenge clicks in right so what yes. do you do <laughs> and you don't have much time to think <laughs> yeah well this has just been really wonderful and I'm seeing a I'm, I, I see that there's a question from behind the glass, so I'm going to be quiet for a moment, and uh, okay. then I'll be back. Okay. Wait, so what's the qu- tell me the question again? A, f- one, a character? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do justice to this. The question is, um, you talked about how fictional fi- figures who come to us by way of fiction can 
can be more real, uh, can <clears throat> certainly be enduring and important and powerful. Um, having, having played the role of God in writing fiction, yeah. um, do you, do you think of, you know, in that, through that experience, do you think of God as a, as a sympathetic character? Or, or is the, or is the question how the way all the ways God has come to us through through fictional fictionalization and nonfiction? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. What hmm. kind of character is God? Well, this is something that Jews talk about every Saturday morning at Torah study hmm. because there are some really Harold Bloom calls it. Uh, uh, the uncanniness of God. Uh, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And um, uh, as you read through the Torah, um, you you are confronted with absolutely inexplicable and um, and very disturbing things. I'll just take the binding of Isaac. Right. Right. Oh, that's a terrifying thing. <laughs> it really is. And uh, uh, the incident with the strange fire where Aaron's sons are suddenly struck down and made into ashes. And, they're, you know, there's no warning. You don't even know what they did wrong. <laughs> you know? right. It's like, right. wow. Right. Um, God is an uncanny character. Um, and, uh, uh, and not altogether sympathetic. You know, there are right. many times when I think if this were apparent, <laughs> I would not be impressed by the skills that right. are being shown. <laughs> but I but I also have this sense that God's character changes. This is something that's that's uh, very true in the Torah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, God learns. God changes. God, uh, for example, God changes his mind. Right. He forgets things. God, right. you know, uh, right. uh, and God remembered. And God remembers. Rachel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and God... Um, uh, regretted that he had made uh, Saul king, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are uh, there are uh, ways of looking at the development of that character and saying uh, maybe he's distracted sometimes. You know, right. there was also the sensation that uh, um, God. Uh, maybe he's omniscient. Let's say for the case uh, for the the um, for argument right. that he is omniscient, right? It's one thing to know that the terrible twos are going to be difficult, okay, when you're a parent. <laughs> it's a whole other thing to live through them yeah. with a child, yeah. okay? And maybe the fact that he knows that having um, uh, children with free will is going to be difficult, right. <laughs> you know, that's different from actually experiencing it as the species grows up. And I, I do have this sense as you read the sweep of the story that God gets better at it. Mm-hmm. And so do we. You know, he's like, he gives us like one rule. Okay, don't eat that fruit. And then, <laughs> of course, we do. You know, don't touch the stove. Oh, no. You know, yeah. This stove? Yeah. Right. Yes, that stove. Uh, and okay, so he says, all right, let's, uh, let's try seven. All right, so you get the Noah-eyed uh, um, uh, commandments. And uh, that doesn't do the trick. So... Um, uh, so he said, okay, here's 10 commands. And then he, right, <laughs> he right. keeps trying to get it. Right. We keep thinking of more ways to be bad than he ever anticipated that we would do. And so there's a, and he, he gets more and more clear on how we need to be raised as a parent. He, he mm-hmm. learns mm-hmm. as we also mature. And as the, as the Bible goes on, you see God less and less immediately involved with the story. And at the end of the Torah... He's almost silent. 
He's, and it's like a parent who has decided, okay, I've, I've done everything I could for you. <laughs> I'm just going to breathe you. in and breathe out now. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm like, good luck, and I'm going to watch, and I am desperate. And this is, here's, here's where you can have God desperately caring, truly involved with our stories. But as, as a parent watching an adult child, it is your job now to step back and let them live their own lives. So for me, that's kind of the theology that I work with. Mm. You know, um, this is going to be my last question. This is really kind of indulgent, but I just want to say this to you. Um, I, um, as I've been reading, as I was reading your books and thinking about interviewing you, and so much of the narrative is about things not turning out at all the way we expected, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, even the best things, yeah. and sometimes sure. the best intentions go bad and the worst intentions mm-hmm. go make good things happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I... I've been having this experience with my son who's 10, and I, I think that's an age where children are starting to think ethically. And, yes. um, you know, fascinating people. Ha- yeah. I love yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'm so I'm the experience I've had with him a lot lately is because he also he has really fixed ideas about how things should be, you know, yes. whether it's an event, whether he wanted it to be mm-hmm. this way. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't this way. And desperately disappointed and, and outraged desperately disappointed. when it doesn't come out that way. Right. And yeah. so I had yeah. this conversation with him, and I, I'm, you know, really experiencing these as really important conversations, whether I'm getting through or not. And just saying, saying to him, you know, this is the a lot of the way life is. And yeah. and you, what you want is good. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to want that, and those are great dreams. But, but also a lot of life is... How do you react when it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to, mm-hmm. which is often yeah. going to be the story? So there's a sense in which the, this is such an elemental narrative, right, of life, yeah. of kind of daily yeah. life. And then when you, yes, as a exactly. novelist, though, you yeah. get to take it onto this great, vast canvas. Yes. But it is yes. also theologically important. I mean, and even resonant with yeah. what you just said. If you, yeah, if you, if you take that metaphor of God as parent... Um, and uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. It can it uh, it helps to put your position in 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 the generations into some perspective mm-hmm. that you have been raised and you are now raising. That mm-hmm. you know what it is like to be the the one who is given the rules and who has expectations and who who grows up and for that brief shining time thinks that all goodness and and. Uh, uh, power resides in, the, in, in a, a benevolent parent, mm-hmm. and then finding out that maybe parents don't always want the best. Maybe they're, you know, there's they don't a, there's even a know lot what's best. Yeah, maybe they, they don't know what's best. Yeah, maybe what they think yeah. is best is not such a great idea right. after all. Right. And you know, that's, and mistakes are made, and they disunder, and they misunderstand, and they mm-hmm. assume, and they're parents, they're human. Mm-hmm. And you begin to really get a sense for that as you raise your own child, and um, and you, you you see this rich recapitulation. Um, so I, I find the um, uh, the metaphor of parenthood uh, tremendously powerful, mm-hmm. and um, uh, but uh, as, as I say, is living living through it and knowing, <laughs> <laughs> right. knowing and, theoretically. <laughs> and your son, your son is an adult now, right? So I mean, yes, even where is. where where yeah. the story ends up is with an adult child oh, yeah. and, and really yeah, total exactly. powerlessness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. You know, he's he's twenty, he's yeah. uh, twenty four now, okay. and. Um, uh, and he is coming into the worst job market since 1945, right. Right. <laughs> and, and he's you can't married. Fix it. And yeah. yeah, I can't. I can't. Yeah. I I can do everything I can to encourage and to um, to help. But he has to make his own decisions about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how long do you beat your head against that wall? 
uh, and uh, when do you decide that what you majored in is not such a good idea? And I personally think that he's going to make it in his field, and uh, and he's he is patching together a sort of career, and I think that eventually this is going to pay off for him. I'm I'm pretty certain that's the case, but you just can't know. You have to learn how to live with ambiguity and anxiety. And um, and it's awful. Right. <laughs> we hate it, but right. there's, there's really no getting around it. That's mm-hmm. life. Hmm. Okay, I think we're done, and okay. they're going to probably kick us out of these studios, even if we're not. Right. Yeah. Um, I love talking to you. I love your books. Your writing is beautiful, which is a core Thank value you. for me. Thank um, you. And so I um, will let you know what's happening with this and. Um, I'm just so happy that yeah. we could do it. I, I hope that you'll be able to somehow introduce this to to, to emphasize that you know, the writing is beautiful because I... Well, we'll de- we'll, we know, can demonstrate just, that. To me, to me um, I'm always worried when people hear me talk that they think they're going to get like Irma Bombeck, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You're I had great. somebody say that I was like the, 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 the demon spawn of Irma Bombeck and uh, Camille Paglia. <laughs> No, you're perfect. I you're really wonderful. I worry about what people are going to expect. When they- <laughs> I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Okay. This has been a delight. Great, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.